1: a room upgrade don't wait to make smart financial decisions compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts and more today at nerdwallet.com reminder credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply NerdWallet, finance smarter
0: if your business needs a new application then developers will have to write code a lot of code if an application needs to be modernized then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code
1: assistant. IBM,
2: let's create. I guess because I realized that there are so many people who want to do this. And so many people that go up for the exact same role that you get, I don't feel like I don't deserve it and someone else should have got it. It's just it. wow, you beat the odds again. And so every time I'm like, I can't believe it. It's just a, it's a I don't know, that, that gratitude of just doing it. You're doing it. It doesn't even matter like, what your resume is behind you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Each time you get a job, fuck, yeah, I get, I get to keep playing. I get to keep doing this.
0: That was Michael Kelly. I'm Sam Fricoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today on the show is actor Michael Kelly, and uh, I imagine your introduction to Michael Kelly uh, was very similar to mine. In 2013, Netflix launched what was their first uh, flagship show. It was called House of Cards. In it, Kelly plays a character named Doug Stamper. He was the right-hand man to then Frank Underwood, played by Kevin Spacey. In case you need a refresher, here's a clip from the show in which Kelly, uh, as Stamper, is sitting in on an AA meeting.
2: I'm Doug, and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. One of the things I do for a living is count. I count votes, yays, nays, neutrals, abstaining. And I'm good at it. But the most important count I do has nothing to do with work. It's the number of days since April 4th, 1999. As of this morning, that's 5,185. The bigger that number gets, the more it frightens me because I know all it takes is one drink to go back to zero. Most people see fear as a weakness. It can be. Sometimes for my job, I have to put fear in other people. I know that's not right, but if I'm honest, like the fourth step asks us to be, I have to be ruthless. Because failure's not an option. The same goes for my sobriety. I have to be ruthless with myself. I have to use my fear. It makes me stronger. Like everyone in this room, I can't control who I am. But I can control the zero. Fuck the zero. I just love
0: that scene. And uh, Michael Kelly was one of the reasons I kept coming back to watch House of Cards. There's something about Kelly's uh, screen presence that is dynamic and and enigmatic and mysterious. You don't really know what he's going to say or what he's going to do. But uh, whatever it is, it is deeply, deeply compelling. And uh, consequently, Uh, In thinking about Michael Kelly, the actor, I was very curious to learn about his life. What I did not expect, based on the character of Doug Stamper, is that Michael Kelly is a very, very um, kind and nice and seemingly normal. He could just be a good actor and playing the part of normal, but um, there is a a wholesomeness to Kelly that uh, I think all of us could take a page from. Uh, If you have not seen House of Cards, uh, fear not, we run through his filmography, including his roles in Man on the Moon, Unbreakable, Changeling, The Adjustment Burrow, and we really end up talking about his marriage and how he fell in love and working with Clint Eastwood and being deeply inspired by the late Arthur Penn. Constance Zimmer described Michael Kelly as the most suave, underrated actor in Hollywood, for his work in House of Cards, Kelly is up for some Emmy consideration. I don't tend to be involved with campaigning or uh, awards with statues and, and superlatives, but his work in this show um, has evolved and changed and absolutely stayed with me in the five or six years since it's been on. So uh, take another look at House of Cards. Take a look at Michael Kelly. He's an incredible, incredible talent. And it was an honor to sit down with them. So, without further ado, here is Michael Kelly. Michael Kelly.
2: What a pleasure.
0: How are we doing? I'm good, man. I do a fair amount of research for these, and there is not a lot out there <laughs> on you, which makes it really hard because I don't have like a team of researchers doing like a crack <laughs> case on Michael Kelly. Yeah, I've noticed that in the interviews, you seem to be asked the same uh, seven things. It is a lot of the same questions, without well, a doubt. I'm not going to ask you any of those today.
2: I love it, man. Is this that is great, okay? Because you know what's so funny? That you should say that, because uh, I was talking to my buddy, Timmy, yesterday. Uh, Timmy wrote um, All Square, a film that I did last year. And a dear friend of mine, he's With like... Josh Lucas. What you, yeah. And he's like, what are, you, uh, what are you doing today? And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do some research, uh, because I feel like I get asked the same questions, and inevitably you always end up answering them the same way. And I was like, I want to just see if I can look at these questions and, and answer them differently because I'm kind of sick of it. <laughs> it, was, it was, it's very refreshing to hear what you just said. Okay, good. I mean, that <laughs> seems
0: timely and, and, and poignant for our conversation. So let's just get into it because uh, the the portion of your life that I want to start in is uh, either between uh, 1987 and 1989, you go to college. Mm -hmm. at um coastal carolina university in conway south carolina what happens in this period of your life when you go to college you study law initially and then you find an acting elective class that makes you want to change from law into the
2: arts what do you remember about that time it it was just so it was crazy because i you know it was was first years of college and although I, i was running cross country for the school um i had a scholarship to a few small schools that was one of them and um I met my roommate, who's still one of my dear friends to this day, and I learned how to surf. That's I I, I remember that like that I loved that, uh, you know, boy from Georgia mm-hmm. <laughs> didn't spend a lot of time in the ocean, and and I learned how to surf. And I met one of my other dear friends still to this day, Stony, who's kind of like the mayor of Myrtle Beach. So Conway is twelve miles inland from Myrtle Beach. Stony Jim the gang we just had this great friendship and we surfed together and ran jim and i ran cross country together it was just fun i mean i remember it just being so much fun like you know you can imagine a kid uh moving from georgia living that close to the beach and being in that beach atmosphere and world it was did it feel good to be away from parents yeah it did it was um you know, on one hand, like, I'm still, even to this day, we're, the four kids and my parents were all super close. Mm-hmm. So, and but we were only a six-hour drive. Like, we would go home to Atlanta on a lot of weekends because that's where a lot of our friends stayed and went to, you know state school there but six hours is
0: the right amount of distance between a little too far away for them to like pop in in. exactly
2: (laughs) although you can still go back when they need you to come back exactly so it was it was great man i those were those were two you know that was an amazing time in my life and i I look back on that college experience and like i say to a lot of young any young kids who i mentor go experience that go live that college life Mm. because even if you don't even if you aren't as so fortunate as I was to actually find your path in life in college, it's a it's an experience. I feel like it's it's, it's a, that what you get from it that independence, living on your own but amongst friends, still communal aspect. That's that's great for uh, learning and growing as a as a young adult.
0: Were you a happy teenager in those years? Like, yeah.
2: Well, how would someone describe you? How would your friends describe you in that? Yeah, part? happy. I mean, I you know. For the most part of my life, I've been I've been very happy. Um, I've read this. This is something just, that I did come across <laughs> in the interviews. It's just, i am it, be hard-pressed not to find me smiling most of the time or, or being amused by something. Mm. Like, I just, I always want to learn. I always want to figure out new shit. And for me, it's like walking around with a smile on your face is kind of the easiest way to grab more information, you know? What was the moment that made you change from law to acting? It was an advisor, and he was just like, you can't take all these classes. You will fail (laughs) because I like to get – because I was behind the eight ball in those 87, 89 years, I tried business, accounting, management, and I just failed miserably at all of them. Not not Fs, but just I didn't excel at anything. Why did you try those? just because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to go to school and get a business degree and go be a business guy, you know what I mean? I like this and, business guy. Yeah, right? Like, I just thought that to get a job, you got to have a business degree. And so that's what I thought you were supposed to do, and so that's what I did, and, and I wasn't very good at it, and I found philosophy, and I was like, oh, this is cool, and I excelled at it because I found it interesting. And then that took me to political science, and then I did well at that, and I was like, I find this interesting. And so... I went to my advisor and I was a little behind already. So I wanted to try and get a bunch of them finished in one semester. And I gave him <laughs> my classes and he's like, no, you'll, you'll fail. And he's like, you can't do this. And I was like, all right. And he was like, let's take one out and put it an elective in. And I was like, okay. And he was like, you should maybe try this acting class if you want to be an attorney one day, this would probably be a good thing for you to
0: have to speak in front of people. <laughs> yeah.
2: Get up in front of people and be comfortable. And I was like, okay, cool. A couple weeks in, we to have a scene partner and, this gal Sonny and I did a scene and the teacher was like, Can I see you after class? And she was like, How long have you been acting? And I was like, I've never done this and she's like, You have something and then I made it my minor and then uh that was it. And then I went for a double major and didn't didn't finish political science. <laughs> <laughs> did it feel like
0: in those early days of acting that you were playing different parts or did you just feel they were extensions of you? And maybe they're always extensions of you.
2: Yeah, I think it it is always an extension of you, and I didn't really realize that until Arthur Penn uh, at the actor's studio took me under his wing and uh, at the real house, not the new school, but the the home. The filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, and he was one of the main people who... he's He was an integral part of the studio at the time, him and Ellen Burstyn. I remember him saying, always bring as much of yourself to the character as you can to ground it in a sense of true reality. So I feel like it's always an extension of myself. I mean, I think there's people like, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis who... as much as I want to be that kind of great actor, I realize that it's not me. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to do that. You can aspire to be as great as you want, but he's operating on a different level, you know, and he can completely remove himself from the equation and completely be this other character that I just don't know that I'm capable of doing.
0: He also seems to have sacrificed a portion of his life. Mm -hmm. And the exteriors of his life for the interiors of his characters. Yeah. Which is a beautiful thing for all of us to experience. Right. But I do wonder how that How much fun is that? <laughs> I wasn't gonna say that, but that's even better.
2: Yeah. And I I respect him and I love him for it because like you said, yeah. we get to enjoy that. But we reap only the benefits of it. Yeah. But at what? Sacrifice to yourself, you know? I don't know. Like I learned method acting at Actor Studio. I learned but I feel like learning all the different schools of acting and drawing from each of them is, is the best way. Mm-hmm. At least that's what works for me. You know, I mean, you, it's like Arthur said to a, there was an actor doing a scene on stage at the actor's studio, and he said he was smelling his grandmother's basement or something. And, and Arthur was like, J- stop, what are, you, what are you doing? And he was like, well, I'm trying to create and live in my grandmother's basement to draw from this emotion. He's like, John, whatever the guy's, he's like, you can act. Just act. These are tools that we use when we need them, except for uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> who, just can, who can live in that. And I, you know, I respect it, um, but I, I can't go to that place. I mean, sure, Doug Stamper, I had a minimal apartment, mm-hmm. modern apartment, very minimalistic. I lived minimally and, and simply. It wasn't method. It was just sort of, you know. Cost-effective. Yeah, well, it just sort of... It, it kind of, you know, I would leave the family in New York and I'm just kind of keep me in that mind space, but I could still go to the pub and drink beers and get rowdy and have fun mm-hmm. and, and laugh my ass off. which He never does, you know, so I don't live. We don't it. know. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's he, does. All he does. I mean, <laughs> you would know better than I would. I've never met him.
0: Um I want to go back to Arthur Penn for a second, mm-hmm. because when I decided I wanted to make movies a couple years ago, there's an interview of arthur penn that i i often cite and think back on he made this movie called night moves i don't know if you've seen this i
2: haven't seen that
0: one. it's with gene hackman it's one of my favorite movies and he talks about um filmmaking in this sense of uh, it's sort of an us versus them and us being those who want to tell a story and them being the people who are going to invariably distribute that story the production company uh, in the yeah. and he had this mentality of like you have to do everything in your power, to keep whatever little bit of you is in there, in there, because they're gonna they're gonna try to take it out, and I guess I want to know your experience with him because that's just the experience that's, I had reading a book.
2: That's so great, man, and that's so him. It's very similar to what he said to 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 me. You know, you keep as much of yourself in that character as you can and ground it in that reality. Self is important. You are. He is the artist. He is giving you him. You know, his films are a reflection of him. Mm. David Fincher's films are a reflection of him, where everything is perfect. That frame is a piece of art. Um, and I think as an actor, it's just sort of the same thing, you know? It has to be real, and a character has to read true if you're nothing like the character. But Doug Stamper, I'm nothing like Doug Stamper, but there's a lot of me in Doug Stamper. A lot of it's buried beneath that I feel comes through at times. What parts are those? I think it's the part that makes the average person root for Doug Stamper, even though he's doing these terrible things. There's goodness inside that person. I consider myself, and I'm not being braggadocious in any way, I consider myself a good person because I mostly do good things in my life. I try to be a good person. I think Doug has that inside, Mm. you know? And he's doing a pretty deep bad below? shit. <laughs> exactly. How deep below is the good person? <laughs> At times he's a lot deeper than others. Uh, no, because but...
0: I've heard you quote on this and, and you say that he is someone who has uh, principles
1: mm-hmm. and that
0: he's trying to do the right thing. I think most people would see that quote and think, what the hell are you talking about?
1: Yeah,
2: but he believes that everything he did had to be done. Like even Rachel, like how crazy is that? Like he killed this woman that he loved, right? That's weird. But it was all, you know, that quote in our show, it's bad for the greater good. Mm. He was serving a much higher purpose than his own needs at that point. He's like, yes, I love her in every, whatever weird way it is, but I have to end this person's life because for the grand picture, it's better off. If Heather Dunbar had a Doug Stamper, he's going to find her. Because Doug believed her when she said, you'll never see me again. mm mm-hmm. Believed her. Made total sense. She would have disappeared under that new identity. But if Dunbar had a stamper, he'd find her. So it was like,
0: gotta take it sucks.
2: I got to kill her. <laughs> and and then, that's where it's hard to find the good in the guy. But at the same time, you can look at it and say, well, he was doing what's good for the what he believed was good for the country at the moment.
0: When you were inside the actor studio, is there a, uh, an instance or maybe a period in which you thought Look, I've made it this far. It's going okay, but I don't I don't know if this is going to work. Did you have full confidence that things were going to pan out?
2: I was very naive. Um, Yeah, <laughs> I, I was very naive. I just, there was one point in my career when I was 38, when I was ready to quit. You, I've definitely said this before, but it, in case someone hasn't heard it, it's pretty interesting, especially for any actors, because I had a career you know, I had made money. Uh, I'd done series. I'd done, but it was a year of one episode of The Sopranos for $5,000. I was living in New York City. We had bought our first apartment. I made no money. And it was like, I'd say like four jobs that it was three or four jobs that it was between me and somebody else, big jobs, a TV show and a couple movies. And every one of them went to the someone else. And I just kind of had it. And my brother was killing it in atlanta building homes and i was like you know what uh, he needed somebody else to help him grow his business and he's my best friend and i was like i can go have a big house down there and you know live a really good life near my all my family and hang out and work with my brother it sounded pretty good and so i called my manager and he's like no no, no. <laughs> he's like give me to your 40 cuz i promise this is what you're doing for the rest of your life and and that was uh, so this is
0: actually the mid 2000s yeah this was
2: this was Mid two thousands, yeah. Because we yeah, I just turned fifty and I was thirty eight. This was like twelve years ago. And um What did you think about that? I believed him and I believed in myself, you know, especially those early years and that being so naive is what got me so far, I think, because I was like, Oh, I have my acting degree, I'm gonna be an actor. But when he said it to me, I was like, All right, I'm gonna think on it and then it was while well, I was thinking over those next month or two I got Generation Kill, and while I, got, while I was doing Generation Kill, I got The Changeling, and then when Angelina and Clint spoke about me the way they did publicly before the film even came out, it, it that changed everything, mm. you know. And from there, it was a ten to watch, and then things really took off again, for, this, for, the, for the for the for sort of the second time in my career.
0: Was the first time in your career the early two thousands? Because
2: yes, a, it was exactly
0: yeah. Like um, that's what I figured because in nineteen ninety nine, you get Man on the Moon. Right. 2000's Unbreakable. I wanted to go through And 2000
2: was the first television series which gave me the first money that I ever, besides commercials. Right. Because Man on the Moon didn't pay me anything, and Unbreakable didn't pay me anything, and understandably so. Um, Do you remember that set on Man on the Moon? Yeah. It was incredible, man. I mean, I was very fortunate that I knew the costumer on that, and uh, Cindy Evans, who I'm still friends with today— she said to me before starting, you know, like, dude, just come ready. It's Milo Shorman. This is a really, really big deal. Everybody's really jamming here, so just come ready. And that that's in my DNA anyways. I over-prepare for everything because mm-hmm. I'm so scared of being the guy that holds up. But, yeah, I remember it being, like, very in awe, you know. You know, I, I was pretty young, and I was just, like there was Jim Carrey you know and there was Milos Forman and it was just like it was insane and uh just trying to be as present as I could to take in all of it mm. you know because there was Jim Carrey doing a master class like if you you know it's funny he won the Golden Globe for comedy and I remember him saying well I don't really look at this as a comedy but thank you when he won the award And for him, I mean, he went through hell, man. He was those characters. He lived as those Mm. characters. He was Tony. When he was Tony Clifton, he was Tony Clifton. Did you see that documentary that came out? No, I haven't seen it. So many people have told me to watch it. It's (laughs) worth
0: watching because he's constantly
2: harassing
0: Milos Forman
2: on there. Do you have memories of that? I don't because most of my dealings with him were as Andy Kaufman. Oh, okay. So... He wasn't as crazy as he was when he was Tony Clifton. I mean, he drove a car into the freaking building. You know, like he he was crazy. But that's what he needed to get there to do the to do that role. I get it. Those, those were
0: could that happen in 2019? No,
3: that no, was 19 not the way years he, ago. Yeah, that was like 20 years right. ago. Right,
2: not the way he walked around on set as Tony Clifton. Tony Clifton was one of the most inappropriate. <laughs> characters. Yeah. Uh, but he was walking around as Tony Clifton. How know? many sexual harassment charges would there be? <laughs> like I said, I was never around Tony, so I don't <laughs> know, but I can imagine probably a few. Well, just driving the car into something. Sure, right? Like, that's... The police are coming these days. Yeah, you know, The police will be called to set. Production will be shut down.
0: There's an op-ed in the Times two <laughs> days later.
2: <laughs> Jim Carrey's lost his mind. Yeah. You in, know... The New Yorker writes
0: a deep dive profile.
2: Right. And you wonder, like are we any better off like, Was there really anything wrong with what he did i mean sexual harassment is wrong i'm i'm not saying that you're asking about the price i think like anything the pendulum swings and i feel, i feel like we're right at the point before it starts to come back and mm-hmm. sort of correct itself not that this is wrong i'm this the me too movement it's all right i'm down I'm, i i get it but you're, it you're... needed to happen things needed to change there was but i feel like the the stuff that doesn't hurt anyone the behavior that doesn't hurt anyone, like I kind of, you know, I I would love to go back and do a picture in the seventies. Just... Of course, <laughs> how much fun would that be? Like to I mean, walk onto one of those sets, people are, boozing and doing drugs. <laughs> like it'd probably be a lot of fun.
0: That's my dream. <laughs> of course, I want to do night moves with Gene Hackman in the seventies <laughs> with Arthur Penn. Are you kidding me? I think there's two big questions here. The first is. What art are we sacrificing by not allowing someone to go to a place that is potentially volatile? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And the answer is probably a lot of good art. Right. And the second thing, which I think would be the counter argument. Again, this is like my mom's a lawyer, so I'm doing the, (laughs) what would the counter be? And the counter would be who has the agency and the room to act like that? Right. And historically, it's always been male actors. No, I think we need to get to a place where Helen Mirren can wow the fuck out. Right. <laughs> and she can spend a month slapping people around, yelling, driving her car into set, which you yeah. would never do because she's too elegant right. and beautiful. Right, But it, I do think that there needs to be – it needs to be okay for both parties. Otherwise, it's okay for
2: no one. A hundred percent. I mean, I, I get it. I, I, I understand, like you said, both sides. I I get it. I get that if you are the studio – you're not risking the lawsuits. I mean, and maybe that's maybe that's where we are. We've become we are the most litigious society in the world. Right? Like everybody sues everybody over anything. So I think until you get away from that, it's gonna continue because who what studio in their right mind wants to 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 roll the dice? So the actors that people are willing to work with, that pull. Will continue to shrink, or everyone will hide their behavior. I guess you know what I mean.
0: Mm.
2: Um, I and the question
0: is, do the movies get worse because of it?
2: Yeah, my my guess, it's probably yeah. You know, I may I'll, I'll give you a good parallel to that. Is that I say with with young actors? You know, I moved to New York in nineteen ninety three or four, maybe the beginning of four. I don't remember exactly. But when I moved there, I moved there with four hundred dollars in my pocket. Uh, you could do it. You you could get a job waiting tables. You know, my buddy and I got an apartment. Um, I remember he put the deposit on it, but I was able to pay the rent and live in a two bedroom in the East Village with two other guys. And you could go there and be a struggling actor and live in Manhattan and be close to your appointments. And that does not exist anymore. So what you have is either people having to live so far out that it's not as easy for them to go to the actor studio every day just to go watch people work. Mm-hmm. To volunteer there like I did as a kid. To stay engaged. to To be engaged, to be and feel a part of that community. Or what you have is actors who are coming there whose parents can afford to send them there who can pay for everything who are not struggling. And I'm not saying you have to struggle to be an actor. I'm not saying that you need any of that. But I do believe that there is a certain character, that work ethic, that drive that I had that made me who I am and the actor I am. And that if you have a bunch of kids who are coming there, there's nothing wrong with these people. I'm not saying that they're any less of an actor. But as a collective group, if all of the kids who are living in Manhattan pursuing acting are only the kids who are rich and have lived a privileged life, then you have a different type of artist. Mm-hmm. And it's going to create a different type of product.
0: It's interesting because it's it's a, it's the thought of if it all looks the same, do those people produce the same thing? I don't know. I I was thinking just for you and your life in that period from like ninety nine to two thousand
2: six seven I mean, before it gets yeah good again and before you're uh-huh.
0: what do you remember about that period?
2: Unbreakable sticks out to me
0: because
2: mm-hmm. even though that was just a oneer, that whole scene is a is a oneer, and and M Knight was so cool. He came to my trailer, and he said, "So look, man, I'm I'm really excited. I can't I can't wait to get in there and, and do this scene with you." And and I was like, "Oh know, you know, I'm in my honey wagon." I'm sitting on the stairs. He was like, "But look, I I don't want you to get too excited because I'm not going to do any coverage of you. This is just going to be." A wonder, but it's a really cool shot. We're gonna come in off of a dead body, a body who's dying, and come in and just come to a medium shot of you guys. And I feel like it's the most powerful way to sell this image. I was like, "All right, cool, I can't wait." And I remember going on the set, and the crew was all on set, and it was me and Bruce Willis and M. Knight. We did one, two, or three takes, and he was like, "All right, um, cut. I want to clear the set for a minute," and everybody left. And he's just talking to me and Bruce about the scene, and like, and I want to do this on this beat, and then this. And he's telling Bruce these things, and he started talking to Bruce for a second. I remember I just turned and I looked, and down at the end of the where the cameras were was Robin Wright, and I was like, "Oh my god, that's fucking Robin Wright! (laughs) Holy shit! I'm in a room right now with M Night." Bruce Willis and I'm looking at fucking Robin Wright I remember and I have to perform I just couldn't believe how fortunate I was I couldn't believe that I was you know I felt a part of it I felt like I'm doing it oh my god I'm I'm really doing this and I just Robin Wright's watching me right now this is crazy and then we we did this scene I forget 16 or so more times and but I was just like man I'm getting to play with Bruce Willis right now this is so cool, you know. And then it made the trailer. It was like my voice was the whole trailer. And I was like, "This is crazy." I remember being in my apartment down on and Street, and my roommate. I was taking a shower. My roommate was like, "Dude, dude, dude, come down, come down!" And I ran down. They were like, "They just said first look on ET or whatever it was." And we watched it real. You know, there was no. It wasn't a lot of internet. You know what I mean? I mean of course. I guess I don't even know. Probably couldn't even then. rewind it.
0: You have to watch right, it. Right? Yeah, that was it. <laughs>
2: We it, we were like, oh my God, it's so cool. Unbelievable. You know, there was no agent sending me a, an email saying, E.T.'s going to do a first look at the trailer tonight. You know, that, mm. it wasn't happening, so I kept waiting for my voice. Once the image left us and it started showing other images of the of the film in the trailer, I was like, kept waiting for my voice to not be the narration of the trailer, and it just kept going, and my friend's like, it's still going, it's still going, dude, it's still going. <laughs> and it was over, we were like, yeah, you know, high-fiving. That was a That was a real a real highlight. Why are you looking at me like that? Your train derailed. Some kind of malfunction. He only found two people alive so far. You and this man. His skull was cracked open and most of his left side was crushed. And to answer your question, there are two reasons why I'm looking at you like this. One, because it seems in a few minutes that you will officially be the only survivor of this train wreck. And two, because you didn't break one bone. You don't have a scratch on you. Did you feel the most alive on set? Well, now that I've had kids, probably not. I think kids really, you know, because you, you kind of start to see the world through their eyes, and you're like, oh, man, you remember what that's like, you mm-hmm. know, and that feels alive. But it, certainly professionally, yeah, I mean, there's, there's no better. I love prep work. I love my doing my homework, but I, I, I really enjoy that. I enjoy anally breaking down my script, you know, highlighting and tabbing the pages and setting my schedule and all that kind of stuff. But when I'm doing it, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it feels, you feel really alive.
0: In 2010, you have your first child. 20, no, nine, I think. I think it's 10. I mean, I don't want to be the one that's right about this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. In June, she will be 10. So, and this is nine. Nine. It's yeah. Nine. Father's well, Day. It okay. Was Father's Day.
0: Okay. We're definitely Great. keeping that in. <laughs>
2: She was born in 09. Yeah. And he was born in 12.
0: My first question w- with, with that is, is the entry of someone else into your life. I don't know the year you got married. That's not publicly available.
2: Is it not 05?
0: Okay. Great. So 12, that, 10, 05. that helps. <laughs> 05, you get married. 09, you have a kid. Um, Your career is picking up at that point. In the act of having that child with your wife, did you think, well, some things are going to have to change here? Mm-mm. You think you could still manage to do it all?
2: Yeah, yeah, I did. And I think that's because I have, like, the most amazing wife in the world. And I'm sure most guys say that, but my wife is not just my best friend. she's She is a warrior, like, personal trainer. She's a badass. So I know that, I knew that if I were to leave, that everything would be fine. She's the best mother in the world. Like, she's just an amazing woman. So I know that, for me, it never even crossed my mind. I mean, yes, of course you'd want, jobs closer to home, but it doesn't work out like you want it to, <laughs> you know. Did um, you always want to be a dad? No, no, I didn't even want to get married. I didn't, uh, there was a large part of my life where I was like, I don't, that's just not, I don't need to do that, like, I don't need to, to do that to fulfill me, like, I don't, I like dating. Um, Why was that? I don't know, I just, it was just sort of like. I was like, I don't need that in my life. And and it, when I met Karen, I was like, oh, wait, I <laughs> I want to hold on. T- I want to be with this woman for the rest of my life. Right. Like, I know that now. And it all made sense. And we took our sweet time, and we were friends. And then we dated for three years before I proposed. And then we were engaged for two and a half. So <laughs> we really took our time. Like, um, but we knew. We knew the first time we met, I was just like... How'd you meet? She came over to buy weed. I was like, a <laughs> I'll, I'll tell this story now. Weed's legal here. I had been fired from a waiting tables job where I made really good money and I was playing in this band and one of our friends, a manager of another band, he got sent upstate, he got busted with like 10 pounds and 10, 10 grand and he had to go do like a year of community service upstate.
0: Were you playing in Leroy Justice? No,
2: I was playing in, at the time I was playing in a band called the Homegrown Lopes, Um, and one of the other bands, the girlfriend of that guy and the girlfriend of another guitar player in another band, they started one of the first weed delivery services with bike messengers, so you'd ride from 42nd to 125 or 42nd to World Trade Center, and the girl came to me one day, and they're like, hey man, you you ride your bike everywhere, would you want to? ride for us? And I was like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we, you know, we, we do the weed delivery and we need another rider. And I was like, what's that entail? And they were like, well, you come to work at two and basically you just ride your bike for eight hours straight delivering weed all over the city. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I can audition all the way until two o'clock. No, definitely. Like this sounds like a great gig. So I did that. And when those girls sold that business, I rode for them for like, Right around Unbreakable, because I was riding for them. Unbreakable came out, and I remember delivering to somebody, a customer who I'd come to know over the year or so. And they were like, Were you just in a movie, Unbreakable? <laughs> yeah, I was. And I was like, Okay, I gotta stop riding. And so I was a dispatcher. But were then, i anyways- that scene with Bruce Willis, thanks for the weed. I appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> so, and it was, it was crazy, though. You would deliver, like, to, you know, I mean, I would go to a bank down on wall street and ride the elevator up to 45th floor and go into a conference room and people would come in the guys here and you know they'd shut the door and I'd deliver to like six different people in one building these two girls sold that company for a lot of money and when they did they gave me the contact and because at that point like I was selling you know to my friends not making any money I would just I would get it from them and I'd sell it to my friends and my buddy and I would get like once they sold that business and I had that, didn't have the connection anymore, they gave us the connection to now. we would buy like a quarter pound and we would sell to friends, basically. And then we would just kind of have enough for free weed for ourselves and a mm. little bit of spending money, enough yeah. to go out to a bar once a week or something. And, uh, and one day my buddy paged me. This was before, <laughs> before cell phones. He paged me and he's like, hey, are you home? I was like, yeah. Uh, and he's like, all right, somebody's coming over. And I was like, who? And he was like, I don't know. It's a friend of Omar's. And I was like, I don't want to meet anybody new. And he's like, dude, come on, you're there. Omar said she's cool. And I was like, all right, whatever. Opened the door, and it was my wife. She had never bought weed in her life. And uh, I opened the door, and I was like, hey. And she came downstairs. We talked for like 45 minutes. And I was like, I immediately called my buddy at the restaurant. I was like, who was that? And he's like, I don't know, the friend of Omar's. <laughs> what do you mean? And I was like, dude, I have to find out. I, I got to get that girl's number. And uh, I didn't. And it was about... <laughs> <laughs> it was about uh, a year later, ran into a union square in the farmer's market. And I was like, oh, my God. And then, like, I ran into her a few months later and I'd given her, I was like, here's my, uh, here's my pager. Here's my service number. <laughs> you know, I gave her my home phone. my social security. She yeah. never called. Yeah. And, uh, Brutal. And then I saw her again, uh, almost a year probably. No, it was after that. Anyways, I'm walking down the street, and this was back before they would email you your scripts, your agents. You would have to go to the agency, pick up the pilot scripts. It was pilot season, so you were going all the time. And I'm walking up Park Avenue, and I look into this restaurant, Park Avalon, and I see Karen behind the bar, and I was like, oh, my God. And she was like, hey, come in, come in. So I go in, and uh, it was happy hour, and she had there was, they would put uh, free pizza out on the bar and I was like, she's like, sit down, have a beer. And I was like, all right. She, I didn't pay for the beer. And I was like, right on, man. She gave me, you know, it's just free food and free beer. So I was like, and we talked for like 30 minutes. And then I was like, the next time I went to pick up scripts, I intentionally did it of course. in the evening, hoping she'd be working. And so I started to frequent it during pilot season. And then one day I, I was like, she had said that her and her boyfriend broke up. And I was like, oh. And she said, I said, well, hey, a bunch of us are going to go see a band on Friday night. You want to go? And she was like, no. And I was like, oh, okay. And she was like, no, I want to go, just you. Deal. (laughs) I was like, cool. And I took the bus home and uh, I dropped off the scripts, grabbed my book, hop on another bus, and rode to my girlfriend's house. And I was like, we're done. I was like, this is, I'd been with her for two and a half years and it was not in a good relationship. She wasn't super nice to me. And I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Just like that. Just like that. And you I'm, rode
0: to the house and we're like, look, there's a girl who didn't, <laughs> didn't want to hang out with my friends. Didn't <laughs> mention the this. girl, but
2: I was just like, it was, it was just not a great relationship, and she wasn't that nice to me. And I was like, I finally, that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, that's who I want to be with. And I went out with her that Friday night, and we've been together ever since.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. How does she recount that story?
2: Exactly the same. Like, not to everybody, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, it was crazy. It was one of those things where we we both just knew. The first time we met, we were like, wow, what is that? But it took years until it was the right. She even guest bartended at my buddy's restaurant. I would ask about her. She'd ask about me. And the guy who owned the restaurant would never tell either of us because we both had significant others at the time. So he never let us in on it, and uh, we found that out later.
0: So do you believe in true love?
2: I guess, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't believe that there is only one person for everyone. I don't believe in soulmate or whatever. Why not? Because I think that you can find your equal, you know. I'm sure there's a handful of them in Paris. There's a handful of them in... There's, there's probably even a handful more in New York who would... Who you might find that same compatibility with. That being said, I, I she's the one I'm I got lucky enough to be with. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I can't imagine it being any better or any other way. Any other way.
0: Uh it feels like given that you're here because uh of House of Cards, we need to talk about House of Cards. Sure. We've done a good job of not talking about <laughs> it. I <laughs> promise you that we weren't gonna do it. It's all good, man. But now I wanna ask yeah. you some different stuff about it um walk me through that phone call
2: you get when you get the part oh i'll never i'll never forget it i'll never forget exactly where i was standing i had auditioned for every role in the sh- Hammerschmidt, lucas russo they asked me to test for russo and stamper i couldn't i was in um new orleans and i was filming and they they wouldn't let me they couldn't let me go uh because of scheduling so I didn't get to go to the test, and they were like, well, we'll just show the tapes for the test. And I'm like, fuck. And Fuck uh, because you know
0: that doesn't translate.
2: Yeah, fuck because, you you know, when you're in the room, and they say, well, what if, what if he did it like this? You know, like, I, I pride myself on being able to take direction. So for me, I was just like, oh, man. Oh, well. I had rented this apartment there, and I was looking out over the street, and my manager called and uh, and they were like, he the assistant was like, hey, Michael, I got B for you. And I was like, cool. Hey, Doug, what's up? And I was like, oh, B, it's Michael. I said, you you got on the wrong line. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. I was looking for Doug Stamper. And I was like, what? And he's like, I'm looking for Doug Stamper. I'm like, I'm getting choked up. He's like, I'm looking for Doug Stamper. And I was like, wait, wait, what, what? And he's like, you got it, dude. You're Doug Stamper. And I was like, oh, my God. And I just, I remember crying. I remember the rock on the windowsill I remember looking across the street the street sign I remember I remember everything I couldn't just couldn't believe it was happening man it was um that was such a uh, that that feeling you know that doesn't go away when you get jobs like that sense of like oh my, especially the one that you want so badly you know David Fincher and mm. that cast and Bo Williman and That was just, uh, that was magic. And then I had the phone call with Bo Willeman where he said, do you have any, he said, I'm just calling to say congratulations. We're thrilled to have you. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited. He's like, you have any questions? I was like, yeah, a million. I was like, but do you want to just say anything? And he's like, yeah, I mean, I, I," because he's like, I I said I had a million questions about the character, but I said maybe you want to start. And he was like, well, and he gave me those two things. He said, you know, I want, he said, what I want is for everyone at the end of season one to go, what the fuck is up with that guy? And he said, and I don't want you to emote. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't have any questions. And and that was, you know, that was it. And I built everything around those two notes of his. So that, that day, you know, I had that phone call from Andrew and then a phone call about him. Woman. I was just like, wow.
0: I'm curious, just as like you and I here, why can't you believe it?
2: I guess because I realize that there are so many people who want to do this and so many people that go up for the exact same role that you get. Not that I don't I don't feel like I, I don't deserve it and someone else should have got it. It's just it wow, you beat the odds again. You beat those amazingly tremendous odds that are against you again. Mm-hmm. And so every time I'm like, I can't believe it. <laughs> it's just a it's a um. yeah I don't know that, that gratitude of just doing it you're doing it and still to this day like it doesn't it doesn't even matter like what your resume is behind you it doesn't matter what you've done each time you get a job fuck yeah get I get to keep playing I get to keep doing this
3: This is far from an offer this is a conversation and it's
1: a conversation that never happened
2: I took the back door in I'll take the back door out
1: We keep you off the payroll this quarter it would start officially September 30th
2: next quarter's FEC filings it's fine What are you thinking in terms of salary
1: 22,000 per quarter
2: That's way below what I'm worth even in this state
1: What do you think's appropriate
2: 250 and 3 points on the out buy
1: That's beyond our means.
2: No, it's not. It's a drop in the bucket from your estate.
3: You said you wanted in because you believed in this campaign. That's right. Sounds like it's more about money.
2: It's about being valued. 250 in the points is a bargain. I want to work for you, just not as a beggar.
3: We don't trust you yet, Doug. We don't even halfway trust you, so you are a beggar.
2: And you shouldn't trust me until I prove myself. That's a gamble you don't get to take without putting chips on the table.
3: Cynthia and I will discuss.
2: Thank you for your time.
0: When it came to Doug Stanford, did you feel like you could channel... And actually, besides Doug, of all your characters, do you feel like you can sort of work through whatever's going going through your life through
2: these characters? Certainly subconsciously I'm sure you do put put shit out into the universe and on film that is part of your real life and, and your and your uh you know, obviously that last season the personal struggles that I had with everything that happened mm-hmm. was used. Um and then I had some health issues at the end of the season that I'm sure I went straight from an end an endoscopy to set one day. <laughs> It was like, I'm sure, at the very least, it came through on on camera, you know? I think the stuff about
0: Kevin Spacey is um, confusing and complex, Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about how I wanted to ask you about it, Mm -hmm. because I'm not terribly interested in um, what he's accused of. Mm -hmm. I don't think either of us have any authority on it. But I am interested in... You know, you spent years of your life working with this man. You spent years of your life probably learning from him Mm. as he is still, although not working now, one of the great actors of our time. Without a doubt. When you learn enough about someone spending time with them, what does that do to you?
2: It was devastating on so many levels because, and we don't even have to get into the accusations and the truth and whatever, none of that stuff what happened was devastating. You go from, like you said, for five years, six months of every year for five years, I spent the majority of my screen time with that person. Mm. And then to have that completely removed from your life, and I mean completely removed from your life, to go from talking to that person every day, at least for those six months, to then just not. I mean, it was... It's... It's uh, It was tough, man. It was really tough because, like you said, I learned so much. And part of the reason when I got the job, I was like, I'm going to learn from David Fincher and Bo Williman and Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey. Like, I'm going to – I was writing, man, I'm going to watch that guy who I put on yeah, one of the highest acting pedestals at the time. I was just like, Jesus Christ, I can't believe what I'm going to learn, you know. And then to just have it completely removed from your life, completely removed from your life is – it's it's um, devastating and surreal, and there's a million emotions that go through your head. And, and I, I guess I'm just thankful that we were able to take that that absence, that energy, and quickly put it into shit. How do we mm. finish this?
0: I imagine it was destabilizing.
2: Yeah. You know, I called Robin, and I was just like, what are, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? Like, we have to go back. We have to finish this show. Like, we can't not, mm. regardless of what happens. And that quickly became the energy, thank God. And that quickly became what the all-encompassing thought, because quite honestly, it took a lot for, especially for Frank and Melissa, the showrunner writers, to even be able to do it in mm. two months. Here you go, just rewrite an entire show without your lead. Change character. your whole thing. <laughs> I know you've been planning it for uh, seven years, but we got to change it all now. So, so there was a, a dark couple months in my life of just like. You know, thinking about that crew, it's not New York, it's not Los Angeles. Like that Baltimore crew was depending on that. Yeah. What's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to their family that you now know and love? And, you know, that's their paycheck. They're waiting on it. Like we waited. It was a long hiatus to begin with. It was tough, man. It was really tough.
0: You mentioned there was some sort of like complete erasure. He's absent from your life. I've had friends who've dealt with this, and it's really hard. It's really tricky and, and, it's hard to discuss publicly, but I, I think the only way to do it is to talk about it emotionally because I think that's how it impacts us. Did you feel like you couldn't call
2: him? It wasn't my place. like. But you want to – I mean, who, I mean but of we course you want to – we didn't – But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that we didn't – it wasn't a pick-up-the-phone relationship ever. Yeah. It wasn't a even really texting relationship ever. So it wasn't like that part was removed. It was just like, well, I – Wow, when I go, if I go back to work, when I go back to work, it will be without that person, and that—that that was the weird part for me. Um, but Robin was the same way, you know. Those two are very private individuals. I respected it, you know. Whereas Derek Cecil, who played Seth Grayson, or uh, or, or or Rachel, or Nev Campbell, you know, we hung out every night. We all went to dinner every night. Bo Willman, when he was there. We went to dinner. Like almost every night, mm-hmm. and hung out at the pub, and but I never had that relationship with Robin or Kevin. Um, I respected their privacy, and it was just that's just the way it was. So it was an absence, and all of a sudden, a departure from like this. You know, if it had been Nev or Derek Cecil, it had been a different story. This was a professional relationship, and but it still hurt and was weird and all that did you have to explain something to your kids she'd heard something i think at her school and asked and she said well he did something that you know wasn't right for work or something i forget how she explained it to her but she she asked me a couple times my daughter didn't work out at work and so they just they decided to do it with the woman you know (laughs) telling your daughter that's kind of easy like especially in today's age you know So the woman is now the president. You know, that's how he explained it. It's complicated, man. It's really complicated. You know, especially with the Me Too, right? I mean, women deserve that. Women deserve to feel safe at work. Mm. There's zero doubt. And and film sets have always been the loosey-goosey place. You know, I remember when the attorney, everyone had to talk to an attorney, right? Uh, When it all happened, after it all happened or whatever, you know, and everyone had to talk and, I remember I was in, I was in my garage and, uh, the, the attorney, we got on the phone finally and she was like, did you ever, uh, see anything, um, inappropriate on set? And I was like, okay, first of all, let's look at this from where you're sitting. I was like, you're calling me from a law office and I'm talking to you right now from my car, but from the living on a film set your definition of inappropriate and my definition of inappropriate are probably vastly different. <laughs> I said, I want to be very clear about that. Um, but did I ever see anything illegal or uncomfortable that made me uncomfortable? No, no, I never have. I said, but, you know, I think it's something you should think about, I said to her, what, what is mm-hmm. inappropriate. And, and, you know, fortunately for me, I never did.
0: The one thing that I keep going back to is that uh, to make any kind of art, whether it's bad Or good or or masterful it's a it's always a volatile confusing complex (laughs) nuanced environment where that art exists and is born from and you have a bunch of people banding together trying to make something people don't naturally get along you try Mm -hmm. to create harmony and in that is a lot of disharmony and so the idea of kind of like what you said what's inappropriate it's like I've seen things that are inappropriate by normal people's standards, yes, (laughs) but none of us ever said that we were normal. When we signed up to make movies, we were not like, yes, and I'm very normal and I could do accounting if I wanted to. I couldn't do accounting if I wanted to. (laughs) I'd be horrible. So I, I just feel like there needs to be like an asterisk or like a preface before it's discussed by people who are not making art, which is... This is not your nine to five job. Mm-hmm. You're putting yourself into it to go back to Arthur Penn. And with yourself comes a lot of fucking baggage.
2: Yeah, and exactly. And in that law office, she's not going to they're not going to say brings a lot of fucking baggage. Yeah. On our set, people are cursing. You know, part of the reason my daughter, she wants to be an actress. And I'm like, <laughs> not till you're older. I don't want to run a film set. And not because of inappropriate. It's just because everyone cusses all the time. Everyone, everything is just a little freer, you know, and not, not illegal, not inappropriate, not uncomfortable. But it's just. I'm sorry that I've cussed a
0: couple times on this podcast.
2: <laughs> we talk differently, you know. Um, being on a Clint Eastwood set, he's making art. Like there, there's you, can, you might not love all Clint Eastwood's films, but he's made some damn good films and some good movies. His history. That set. Is the most professional, quiet as a mouse. Everybody works quietly. You don't really hear much I love that. cussing. Everything is just, he talks and he doesn't even yell cut or action. He's like, all right, when, when you're ready there, young fellow, you go in. And then he's like, all right, stop. Like, you know, <laughs> that, that's and, action and that's cut. It, that's a wrap for the day. <laughs> and you work like an eight-hour day. And he's like, all right, let's go home and be with our family. Eight hours. Eight, maybe ten. Let's go home and be with our families. Let's go home and have dinner with the family. I'm like, oh, I
0: love this. Did you ever ask him why he spent time talking to that chair at the RNC?
2: <laughs> I did not. I'm trying to think it was it might have been it was before that, I think. I did say something negative about W. Uh oh. Um
0: What could you have possibly and- <laughs> said?
2: <laughs> and and I got this look. Uh you know, one of those. And I was just like, I, I probably shouldn't talk politics right now. But I was young, younger and naive.
0: Let's talk politics for a second before we go. All right. Um, the show, when it started, seemed like a sort of uh, dystopic, nightmarish vision of what it could be. As the show went along, it seemed like we kind of caught up to you guys um, in, in the House of Cards universe. I know you do stuff um, on the Hill with uh, an organization for uh, the elderly. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, I want to know how you're feeling right now, politics-wise, when you look at it.
2: You know, this is it's, it's a really trying time for our country. For, for me personally, I take a lot of it. I, I love politics. I mean, I, I really love it. Like, I read about baseball and I read about politics mm-hmm. and some football it's it's really weighing on me i i feel like we're really at a crossroads in our country right now that's like the fact that when the president of the united states speaks i have to if the kids are around i have to mute it there's something very wrong with that i have a real problem with that And i think that's the simplest way to put it we have someone in office who is in my opinion so unfit and i pray for the day that we have proper decorum and knowledge and respect of the office brought back to the white house i, I just when you give racist and racist thoughts and bigotry a platform and a voice they're going to raise their voice and they're going to stand on that platform and that's what's happening right now we are a country of immigrants i'm here because my grandfather and grandmother came over from ireland and my mother's grandfather and grandmother came over from Italy and they came to this country and they worked hard and they made a better life for their kids who then made a better life for me and now I hope to make a better life for my kids it's heartbreaking to me to think that 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 all of a sudden the white people of this country are going to be like no this is our it just doesn't make any sense at all and and gay rights and everything we're just going backwards right now and it's absolutely heartbreaking to me and what's Mm -hmm. happening with the courts and what's happening with... I can't wrap my head around
0: it. It, I I, I don't tend to talk about politics on this podcast. (laughs) It's called Talk Easy. Usually we we dabble in feelings. (laughs) The thing that sort of crossed the line for me professionally is just what's happening in the South and and the abortion laws. It's sick. It's really... uh, I know we're two straight white guys talking about it. Um, I do think actually people that look like us mm-hmm. <laughs> need to be vocal about being in support of uh, a woman's right on this case. Cause I actually think you do, you can't have men be silent on it.
2: I can say because I am an older white man, but when you have a group of 30 older white men in Louisiana, whatever the the latest one was, thirty white men that are going to say we are going to make a decision of what a woman can or cannot do with her body. Mm-hmm. There's something very, very wrong and and scary about that. You know, Georgia, if that gets signed into law, that is going to cost the state of Georgia a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Hollywood is going to pull out of Georgia, yeah. And, that, and you have family there. Yeah, I mean, that will that will what do they think about cripple it? that economy? I have an interesting household. My father is a Republican, a former Marine, um, one of the greatest men to ever walk the earth in my eyes.
0: Um, is he like and, uh, Mr. Trump?
2: No, he does not like Mr. Trump. Thank God, or I would not be saying he's one of the greatest. <laughs> um, he. My mother uh, is. Uh, is about as far left as you can go. Mm. Um, it's always and like So that. they're like James Carville and Mary Madeline in my house. You know, it's uh, when this election happened, I called him days before the election and I called my brother-in-law days before the election and I emailed and I said, guys, this is so important. You're in the state of Georgia. All I ask is that you fully research both of these candidates and not just from what you hear on the news. Find out what their policies are. And go with who you policies you believe are the right thing. And my dad called me the day after the election and he said, hey, I just, I'm calling to check in on you. I know this is probably a really, you're having a really tough day. And I said, I I am. This is really tough for me to swallow. And he said, I just want you to know, um, I wanted to share with you that I didn't vote for him. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I was like, wow thanks Dad that's that's awesome and he said, I didn't vote for her either <laughs> and I said, but I know you voted because my dad is one of those people who believes it is your duty like I believe it's your duty to vote. you have to vote yeah if everyone voted in this country, Republicans would not be in office right We know that <laughs> you down. win the numbers game every time
0: who who are you? I know you're someone who's like deeply immersed in this yeah. world because I think with this character probably catapulted your interest in in politics. Who do you like right now?
2: I like a lot of these candidates. Uh, You know, I think we could easily whittle it down to 10 right now and it'd probably be a lot better off for everybody. But Mm. I get it. You know, you want to... God, 10's uh, a lot too. uh, I know. (laughs) I can't believe we got got to
0: whittle it
3: down to 10.
2: (laughs) Great. Um, I, I always liked everything that Bernie Sanders said when he was running the first time. I don't like how Bernie Sanders acted after Hillary regardless of how you feel about how Hillary got that nomination, right? Like <laughs> I understand he feels cheated. I under I get yeah. all that. In my opinion, like he, he kind of burned that bridge because it should have been all for one and he said he was all for one, but he didn't do what he could have done. In my, yeah. in my opinion. And that that being said, he's one of, the, you know, I've, I I worked for seniors, like that's one of my main issues. He is a pioneer of that, you mm-hmm. know. And always has been for it. I believe he has great ideas for the country. I just don't think it's the right time, unfortunately. I think his time was last time, and yeah. it's, it's gone. Some big picture things,
0: because I feel like we've hit everything now. Yeah. So now I'm going to ask you anything. What
2: have your children taught you about being a man in the world? you got to be better, you know? You should always strive to be better than what you are. Because you are the one setting the example for them, I want to be a better man because of my kids. I feel like since my kids, although they age the shit out of you, they also make you younger. Because, like I said, you see it through their eyes again. You're like, oh, yeah, you know what? Every time I get down with politics or whatever, it's like you just go spend half an hour playing Monopoly Junior with one of them, and you're like in a <laughs> much better place in the world. You know, a- happiness, man. They just, uh, how easy it is to find happiness when mm. I learn from them.
0: Has that been hard for you to find?
2: No, no. I just mean, like, when you get down, that it's it's easy to get out of it if you just hang around a kid. Like, kids bring happiness, you know. Even if you're happy, they can make you happier. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, it's just, they're, they're my kids are the best, man, and they make me whole. I have a, I have a very practical thing for you. Mm-hmm. You seem
0: unbelievably sane. (laughs) I don't know if an interviewer's ever asked you that or told you that. You do. You seem very uh, even keeled. I'm sure Tim agrees he's been listening the whole time. (laughs) You seem like a very sane and centered and happy person. I'd like to know, and I'm sure people listening would like to know, how the hell do you do that?
2: I think it's family, I guess, you know. In all honesty, I think it's family and, and, and friends. It's, it's everything you surround yourself with in life. And, and thank you. That's a, that's a very nice compliment. But I think it is everything that you're, the people you're around are who make you, right? Like uh, I had my 50th dinner party the other night and here in Los Angeles with some friends and I said, 20 people, and I said, I, they say that your friends in your family. My sister was there as well. I said, they are a reflection of you. And I was able to look around that table and I say, and that makes me feel really good right now because this, if I can look at all these people and be like, that's a reflection of myself, then I feel pretty damn good in the world. You know, those Mm -hmm. are all people that they laughed all night. We, We told jokes and stories and asked about each other's families. And, you know, I have parents and siblings that are amazing and supportive and have been supportive my whole career. So, it's, you know, and a perfect wife and, and kids, it's like you surround yourself with goodness. It's kind of hard not to be good.
0: You're entering, uh, I guess, what people call midlife. Right? Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm fit- into that for sure. Fifty? <laughs>
0: yeah. How do you feel about it?
2: Uh, I feel great. I think it's, you know, it's a number to me. You know, I try to stay as fit as I can. I, I try to eat right. Um not be excessive with anything i don't really even drink anymore which sucks that was that was a tough one the, the health <laughs> thing i went through it was like uh, you had to get rid of it not uh, yeah he didn't say you had to he was just like the things you're dealing with would be a lot easier to deal with if you weren't drinking so you know and i was every day like i drank three beers or three glasses of wine or or a couple whiskeys like every night it was sort of how i turned off and and uh And thought that I needed that to turn off. And what I found was I, because I had to, (laughs) I found that I didn't need it to go to sleep. And I didn't need it. Like, it was more habit than anything. And I didn't even find it all that difficult to quit.
0: But, yeah. I think it was more a question of uh, any sort of fear of... Of death? Yeah.
2: No, man. I I think if you you live your life to the fullest and you enjoy the shit out of every day... If you get robbed early it would really suck and i would be devastated i'd be dead so i really probably wouldn't be anything but if you felt anything beyond i think my biggest devastation would be not being there for my wife and kids that would be Mm. you know i feel like i've i've lived a great fun (laughs) life and if i get robbed of the second half of it i'd be pissed but you know i wouldn't have regrets I think it's the best thing you can say.
0: The second half of it, what do you want it to look like?
2: I think the greatest thing for me would be to see my children, you know, grow up. Can That's that to me, to see, to watch them grow as individuals, to stay the wonderful, good people they are, and for my wife and I to enjoy our, our latter years traveling and just doing whatever the hell we want. You know, like, that's... That's gonna. That's what I, I look forward to, you know, maybe one day having a place on a beach somewhere and just waking up and going surfing and the kids coming whenever they can come. Like, that would be a perfect, perfect life.
0: Well, Michael Kelly, I wish that for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think it's going to happen. I think you're going to be all right. I hope so. <laughs> uh, it was a joy having you here.
2: Really a pleasure, man. Thanks so much.
0: Special thanks to Michelle Schwartz and Daniel Jackson. This episode of Talk Easy was taped at York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. To learn more about their wonderful space, visit YorkRecording.com. If you haven't already, be sure to check out uh, Michael Kelly in the latest season of House of Cards. It is streaming on Netflix only. To learn more about Michael and our podcast, you can visit our site at TalkEasyPod.com. There you'll find a back catalog of a whole bunch of episodes we've done with actors like Kenneth Branagh, Jackie Weaver, Vincent D'Onofrio, Matt Walsh, Keith David, Britt Marling, Bill Pullman, and uh, that's only this year. So be sure to visit our site. We're available to stream on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to give a shout out to William Thomas, who uh, donated to the show this past week. If you'd like to learn about how and where you can help us out, uh, visit our site at talkeasypod.com slash donate. You can also drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at talkeasypod. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, music by Dylan Peck, social media by Crystal Farmer. Our engineer is Tim Moore. Our intern is Ghani Zur. Our associate producer is Ian Chang. And the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fracoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I will see you next Sunday. For now, here's a song to play us out. Have a good weekend.
3: Across 110th Street is a hell of a tester. Across 110th Street, pimps trying to catch a woman that's weak. Across 110th Street, pushers won't let the junkie go free. Across 110th Street, woman trying to catch a trick on the street. I'm That dope man you're copping out Take my advice It's either live or die You got to be strong If you want to survive The family On the upper side of town But will catch hell If without a ghetto around In every city You'll find the same thing going down Harlem is the capital of every ghetto town Let me sing it Across the 110th Street Pips trying to catch a woman that's weak Across the 110th Street Wishes for that let the junkie go free Oh, across the 110th Street A woman trying to catch a trick on the street Ooh, baby Across the 110th Street we're going